Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. As a philosopher, I wanted to say a little bit both about the brain and um, how the mammalian brain in particular may contribute uh, in, in very interesting ways uh, to social behavior. But I also want to say a little bit um, of a philosophical sort, both to sort of give uh, the discussion uh, a context. So Aristotle, in many ways, meshes very well, I think, with how we are beginning to think about morality in a scientific context. Um, although it was to about 250 BC when he thought these things, he felt that it was in our nature to be social and that it was advantageous for us to be social. He saw morality as consisting of very practical problems that needed to be solved at both the social and, in, and the individual level. And in that, really, he contrasted with Plato, who was very mystical in his conception of the nature of morality. Aristotle also thought that human well-being was a major target of uh, human values and that there were better and worse solutions to particular problems. And in that sense, he thought that often there was a matter of fact of which solution uh, served well-being to a greater extent. And finally, he really emphasized the importance of habits and culture and skills in acquiring wisdom as to how to make good moral decisions. Now, of course, part of what we really want to know is what is it about our nature that makes us social? Why are we social? And in particular, we want to understand where values come from. Now, I'm going to do this very fast, and for that I really must apologize, but um, the first point is really very simple, and that that is that all animals are organized to see to their own survival and well-being. We have mechanisms in the case of mammals and vertebrates. Uh, Generally, we have mechanisms in the brain stem that ensure that when glucose levels fall or when carbon dioxide levels rise, uh, when there are certain other changes bearing upon temperature, that action is taken. And there is a kind of coordination of circuitry so that priorities are set and the animal does well. That's sort of the basic story for vertebrates. But when we come to mammals, we get something really very different. Now, I'm going to suggest that uh, altruism or cooperativity in mammals is probably based in something rather different uh, from what it is in social insects. In mammals, in order to ensure that the dependent offspring are well cared for, it's as though the homeostatic ambit of the parent or the mother expands to include the offspring so that whereas she must see to her own survival and well-being with a similar care she must see to the survival and well-being of the offspring. And so there is an expansion of meanness as it were to include mine. That would be of course initially the case 
uh, in early mammals. And we know a certain amount about that circuitry, although there's much about the evolution of the mammalian brain um, that is still not understood. One of the important things then is that when there is separation of infant from mother, there is anxiety, cortisol levels rise. When there is reconnection between the two, then oxytocin levels rise and cortisol levels drop and it feels good. So pain and pleasure are right at the root of the attachment and the bonding uh, between mother and infant. Now, of course, in certain uh, social animals, and very famously this is true of the prairie voles, uh, there can also be a bonding with mates. And we know something about how that occurs. So we know that the contrast between the uh, bonding for life between mates in prairie voles, which differs from montane voles, who don't really care very much about each other and aren't particularly social. That the bonding and attachment is regulated, so far as we know, mainly by the density of receptors for vasopressin in the ventral pallidum and for oxytocin in the nucleus accumbens. And if you change those things, you change the behavior. Roughly then what it looks like is that the big change that gives you caring for others comes with the mammalian brain. And that smaller changes, tweaking a bit here, tweaking a bit there, can give you rather different forms uh, of social behavior. And it's interesting in the case of the prairie voles, but this is also true of marmosets uh, and some other species, but certainly also of, of birds, that uh, the males partake of the um, parenting. And an interesting result is that if you give a naive male prairie vole, oxytocin, he immediately begins to parent uh, pups that happen to be nearby. He huddles over them, he licks them, he nurtures them, and so forth. So the hypothesis is that sociability is a basic value for social mammals and that it's rooted in caring that the hub of the story has to do with oxytocin, but of course there are other neuromodulators uh, and neurotransmitters that play a crucial story, including dopamine, serotonin, and of course vasopressin, but also the endogenous opiates. This is all going to be augmented by the reward system, so that the animal will learn the social practices and conventions, as well as the individual ways of others in that particular group. And it will also change as a result of the elaboration and expansion of prefrontal structures. The fact is, of course, we don't know very much about what prefrontal structures actually do in detail. There is some understanding that they play a very important role in uh, social understanding and social cognition and also in impulse control. But at a detailed level, we don't really understand what they do and we don't really understand why there was such a great expansion of frontal structures in primates. Oxytocin is important. As I said, it's the hub, but only the hub of the story because it decreases defensive postures, it increases the level of trust, it decreases the level of autonomic arousal, and in general, it acts as a kind of safety signal. 
Now I'm going to switch gears and just remind us of something, because I'm about to get into the philosophical bits, uh, remind us of something that uh, we all learned in basic psychology but is easy to forget. And that is that our everyday workaday concepts have a radial structure, meaning that they have uh, exemplars or prototypes at the center where we, we all pretty much agree, for example, that a carrot is a vegetable. But then with varying degrees of similarity, uh, other things such as radishes or mushrooms, we may disagree about whether they are really vegetables. The boundaries tend to be fuzzy. This is true not just of a concept like vegetable, but uh, house, creek, river, mountain, and many other things. Now, the, I've introduced this here because I think social categories and indeed moral categories uh, also have a similar organization. They have a radial structure. So who counts or what it is to be a friend is not something that we define in terms of necessary and sufficient conditions. It's what the child learns by example. And similarly, what it is to be honest or to be kind or to be brave or to be trustworthy and so forth. Now, in, in talking about prototypes, of course, in, in the social domain, it's probably worth pointing out that the prototypes may well differ as a function of the ecology. So the basic platform for caring may be pretty much the same, but people are going to differ as to the particulars of what they count as being honest or being trustworthy. Just as in, in this slide, uh, that house may be considered prototypical by people who live in Michigan, uh, but in California, that would certainly not uh, be considered prototypical, but it would be for people living in the north. And I think we can see similar variations in cultural practices as a function of differences uh, in ecology. And I think that probably uh, echoes something that Christoph Besch said in his talk uh, about chimpanzees. So... The other quick point I just want to make here, too, is that a very important way, which we often don't think is important, but I, I, I am become convinced is, of transmitting understanding to children about values and the prototypes of these categories, like honest and trustworthy, is via stories. So here, of course, we have the boy crying wolf, and we learn that deception is wrong. But here we have Briar Rabbit saving himself through a deception. You know, don't throw me in the briar patch, even though that's where, of course, he wants to go. Uh, here we have the, the ant and the grasshopper. And, of course, we all know the grasshopper comes to a bad end because he's not thrifty and working hard. And, but we also are told that uh, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Part of the point here, too, I want to make is that we sometimes invoke a rule to a child, although this is much more a Western than an Eastern phenomenon. Uh, but even when we do so, we also at the same time are teaching the child about the deeper values and the deeper understanding and wisdom that will allow it to know when an exception is okay, when it is okay to deceive, when it is okay to lie. 
Now, a standard philosophical objection, which I shall criticize shortly, to all of this foray into morality from a scientific perspective is that it's, it's just descriptive. It's not really telling us what we ought to do. And the justification for this is usually uh, to invoke uh, St. David Hume and say, um, but Hume said you can't derive an ought from an is. And this is then followed up, and, and this really deeply characterizes most moral philosophy, although there are exceptions in the 20th century, that there are facts and there are values, and you cannot infer what is valuable from the facts, no matter how complex and rich they might be. You have to have a normative premise, and fortunately, we philosophers are just the guys uh, to provide that. <laughs> But you know, it doesn't seem like it really holds water. And it partly doesn't, because it's clear that Hume himself did not believe that, because he went on in the book uh, to make all sorts of inferences about how, what we ought to do and how institutions ought to be structured. So let's take it apart. What does a derivation require anyway? Well, a derivation means you've got a deductively valid argument. If P, then Q. P, therefore Q. That stuff. All humans have kidneys. Bill is a human, so Bill has a kidney. That's derivation. That's deduction. It can get complicated, but it still has that same character. But most of what we do, most of the time, both in the physical and the social world, in making our decisions about what we ought to do, has very, very little to do with deduction. I actually think I can go through a whole week without making one deductive step. Now, Adam Smith and David Hume both said, and, and we heard this uh, a little earlier, and, and this, I think, really is echoed in the way we're thinking about values neurobiologically, that our natures set our basic values, and they constrain how we refine those values in particular ecological niches, whether we're living in the city, whether we're living in the country, whether uh, we are living in a very cold climate or not. Now, of course, part of the reason that people wanted to say that uh, Hume was the right smackdown for, for uh, a scientific approach to morality was that it's quite true that something is not desirable just because it's desired. But that's at least in part because there can be conflicting goals. That is, I might have more than one goal and they might not mesh well, maybe because one is long-term, one is short-term, maybe simply because I'm conflicted. There's also the matter of the ignorance of the future, and there's risk assessment, and desires can change over time. So as a naturalist, that is, someone who thinks that we can learn a lot about the nature of morality from understanding science in its broadest sense, uh, I shouldn't be sort of sucked into saying something is desirable just because it's desired. On the other hand, what is desirable, or what we ought to do, is not independent of what humans do desire. What our brains care about fundamentally does shape the ought space 
that we inhabit. And this is reflected in how we organize institutions, policies, and daily social behavior. Now, this contrasts, for example, with people who take the view that what we need to do on a regular basis is maximize aggregate utility. And here's how the conflict arises. Aristotle and I would say that you need first to take care of your own children. And then if you have additional resources, then uh, it would be fine to take care of 100 Haitian children. But if you take the view that your main obligation is to maximize aggregate utility, and this is actually adhered to both by Josh Green and by uh, Peter Singer, then you ought not to treat your own children as special. You ought to treat them as impartially as you would treat anybody else. I think that's biologically not possible. And I also think it's probably morally irresponsible. Um, so, just to, to sort of sum up on this part then, uh, attachment and trust, I think, are the anchors of morality. But that doesn't give us very much of a specific sort as to uh, how we ought to behave in a given context. But, but they are the dispositions that contour the social problem space. They do also constitute the motivation to find good solutions to practical problems. And I'm assuming that given that we do have these uh, rather large uh, prefrontal structures, that they do help us in certain interesting ways to control impulses, to see a bit further into the future so that we can evaluate risk and consequences in a slightly better way than we might if we were homo erectus. And probably in ways that we really don't understand, mirror neurons notwithstanding, they probably enable us to attribute mental states to others in a much richer way than we could if we only had uh, a brain, let's say, of the size uh, of an australopithecine. So certainly problem solving is going to be part of the story. Culture, which I haven't mentioned here, is going to be a hugely important part of the story. But what I think is the basic platform for the story is what happened to mammals about 350 million years ago. Thanks. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.